Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hello, this is Laura Harris-Hills, and I'm here today with Matthew Gray. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Professionally, my background is mostly in archaeology and the history of early Judaism at the time of the New Testament. That was an interest that began in my undergraduate work as here at BYU, and I was in the Ancient Near Eastern Studies program, and then I went into graduate school, got a master's degree in archaeology and the history of antiquity from Andrews University, second master's degree in Jewish studies from the University of Oxford, and then my PhD at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in archaeology and early Judaism, which gave me a really nice background in the world of Jesus and the world of the New Testament. been working as an active field archaeologist during the summers. I continue to go to Israel, and right now I've been excavating an ancient Jewish village called Hukok, which is near the Sea of Galilee, and we've been uncovering the synagogue of that village, which has been very exciting. In addition to my archaeological fieldwork during the summers, I've been teaching on the faculty of the Ancient Scripture Department here at BYU, where I teach mostly New Testament and classes on Jesus in his Jewish context. I've heard you speak on the Gospels, and you do a phenomenal job. I learned so much. But today, I'm going to focus on Joseph Smith's study of Hebrew. How did you become interested in the topic? When I was in graduate school uh, in the summer of 2006, I was invited to teach a undergraduate course on biblical Hebrew here at BYU. It was fairly intensive, several hours a day. And as we were going through this class, some of the students started to get a little bit frustrated with some of the rigor of the course, memorizing vocabulary and parsing verbs and looking at the finer technicalities of grammar and translation. I was trying to think of ways to keep them motivated and excited to do the more detailed work of learning a language. One of the ideas that I had was to actually start collecting passages from Joseph Smith's journal where he talked about his own study of Hebrew, where he and early leaders of the church themselves organized a Hebrew class. They got in a professional Jewish teacher that we'll talk about later. And as they were working through the course, they were doing the exact same things that my students were doing, memorizing vocabulary, working on verbs, working on the finer points of translation. And they struggled. They had challenges. It was difficult, but they thoroughly enjoyed what it was doing for them, not only intellectually, but spiritually. So as I was sharing that material with the students, I just became personally fascinated in the topic myself, and I found myself wanting to know more about why was Joseph studying Hebrew exactly? How did he proceed in that endeavor? What were the impacts that it had on the church and on early Mormon thinking and practices? Over the years, as a result, I developed a bit of a side project to start collecting more material on Joseph's study of Hebrew, trying to learn more about the larger context of Hebrew study in early America, tried to find some of the surviving Hebrew grammars that might have been part of the Kirtland class. The result of this side project has been a series of articles. I've actually read your book chapter in Approaching Antiquity, and you have in there a picture of a Massa Lyman's study book, Hmm. his workbook from his Hebrew class. I was so impressed. This is not easy stuff. Right. Some call the winter of 1835-36 a plateau of pleasantness and peace at the center of the church. This is right after Zion's camp. We had this little quiet period, and then the church sort of implodes in 1837 after the Kirtland Safety Society right. uh, anti-bank failure. 
It's during this period, though, that Joseph Smith embarked on one of the most ambitious CES endeavors, the Hebrew School. At first glance, it seems a bit random. Is there anything in the surrounding Christian culture that could account for a group of largely uneducated saints attempting to learn a quite difficult ancient language? Yeah, I think there are a few things that are really important to establish the context of Joseph Smith's early fascination with the Hebrew language and the interest in learning the language by other Latter-day Saints. And I think that context actually goes back to the earliest days of the Protestant Reformation. Ever since the early European Reformation, there's been this fascination among Protestants for the learning of the original languages of the Bible, the study of Hebrew for the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament. And I think that Protestant interest came over with the Puritans to America and in the early pre-revolutionary colonial colleges, Hebrew became a very important part of the curriculum, uh, again, for the idea of training Protestant clergy. Even though by the late 1700s, there had been a bit of a decline in Hebrew interest and deference to the classical languages of Greek and Latin, through the 1820s, 1840s, there was a Hebrew revival in America. That intellectual climate of the early 19th century prompted Joseph to create a school system in Kirtland that would prepare church leaders and church missionaries in the basics of biblical translation that would help them in the ministry and that, as Joseph believed, would help with the establishment of Zion. Was it a desire to get at the deeper roots of Christianity, get back to the New Testament church, get back to the original Bible, and in order to do that, you have to be able to read the Hebrew language? There was definitely this idea among Protestants in the uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries that Hebrew somehow contained some of the pristine mysteries, some of the earliest revelations that God gave to humanity could be unpacked through a study of Hebrew and through reading the Old Testament text in its original Hebrew. In America, it also developed in some unique ideas where there were some scholars and theologians at the time who believed that Hebrew was actually related to the original pure language spoken by Adam in the Garden of Eden and that remained humanity's common language until the Tower of Babel and the confounding of languages. I think another aspect of the 19th century that's an important context for Joseph is that there were many church leaders of other denominations and other theologians and thinkers who believed that Native Americans might somehow descend from ancient Israelites. And so there was this hope that, again, by understanding Hebrew, we might be able to recover some of those Native American Israelite origins that, of course, will be very fascinating to Joseph Smith and his followers. So I think that all of these things combined, this confluence of ideas and fascination with Hebrew, are all going to motivate Joseph Smith and be part of his larger restoration project. Now, this wasn't Joseph's first foray into studying languages. He dabbled with W.W. Phelps in the past on the Adamic language and studied it. They'd done some work with it. Charismata was still really big in mm -hmm, the church sure. when it was formed, which is speaking in tongues ostensibly yes. in the Adamic language. So you can see a fascination. Can you pinpoint why, besides it being a quiet time and there being an opportunity that Joseph chose this point in time to start studying Hebrew seriously? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think that what we need to do actually is take a step back and remember that Joseph's fascination with languages, as you said, were actually present from the very beginning of the Restoration Movement. Some of the earliest titles given to him in Revelation section 21 of the Doctrine and Covenants, for example, identifies Joseph as a seer, a prophet, and a translator. 
And so I think that from the very beginning, Joseph viewed his work of translation as a really important part of his prophetic identity. And we see that, of course, with his earliest translation project, which is the Book of Mormon, this text that, according to his understanding, was a reformed Egyptian document, which I think that Joseph and his contemporaries would have identified as some kind of amalgamation of Hebrew and Egyptian. So from the very beginning, there was this interest in learning ancient languages, although it's fascinating that in the earliest years of Joseph's work, his translation activities were almost all supernatural, right? It was his work with seer stones. It was his work with divine inspiration, perhaps some visionary elements. And it was his supernatural prophetic gifts that allowed him to work with the Book of Mormon translation, his new revision or translation of the Bible, even a Johannine parchment that he sees in vision. And I think that's going to start changing in late 1832, early 1833, with a series of revelations in which God commands him and the Latter-day Saints to better engage with intellectual learning. You have this series of revelations, section 88, section 90, section 93, that instruct Joseph and the saints to study out of the best books, to learn history, politics, theology, and even language. And I think that those commandments would have been understood as language in the traditional manner. By the early 1830s, mid-1830s, there is an interest in learning languages in a more traditional manner. When the Kirtland school system begins to be organized around that time, language study will be a part of it. Initially, the only language courses that will be offered at the Kirtland school system will be English grammar. I think that was going to be important for many early Latter-day Saint converts to let's learn English first as a way to prepare to be better ministers in the kingdom. But eventually, by 1835, the idea was, well, let's start our biblical languages beginning with Hebrew. Later on, they'll be studying Greek and Latin as well. But Hebrew will be the first non-English language that they'll study in the Kirtland school system in 1835. And I think that the timing there is going to be very interesting. And I think it's not going to be a coincidence that the emphasis on studying Hebrew formally will not really come until after the arrival of the Egyptian papyri in Kirtland in July of 1835. And after their initial work with the papyri, it's going to be shortly after that that they organize the Hebrew school. If we look at the history of the church, Joseph Smith purchased scrolls of papyri in July, like you just mentioned, and then he commences his study of Egyptian, creates with W.W. Phelps and some others something we call the Gale, mm -hmm. which is an Egyptian dictionary of some kind. Egyptian transcribists right now would see no correlation between the characters and the words that Right. They put down, so we're not quite sure what that was. And then he moves on to his study of Hebrew. How do you think these are related? Because historians have been scratching their heads at this gale and thought maybe it didn't have anything to do with his study of Hebrew or the Book of Abraham at all. Right. What have you found in your research? Yeah, it's a really important question that I think we need to, to revisit. What is the relationship between the Egyptian project that Joseph Smith begins in July of 1835 with the arrival of the papyri and his subsequent study of Hebrew, which begins by the end of that year? And as you said, yeah, in the past, I think we've always looked at those two as two separate projects. He begins in the summer of 1835 by working with the papyri, creating this Egyptian alphabet and grammar that you'd referred to. His initial work with the translation of the Book of Abraham, all deriving from his interaction with the papyri. But then he stops and shifts over to, to Hebrew studies by the end of the year. And by January of 1836, he's fully immersed in a Hebrew course that lasts all the way through the spring of 1836. I think it's quite clear that those two projects were meant to work together. 
that when the papyri arrived in Kirtland in 1835 in the summer, that Joseph immediately throws himself into the decipherment of these texts. But we need to remember that in the early 19th century, no one really knew how to decipher Egyptian. Champollion had done some work cracking the Rosetta Stone back in Europe, and some of that research had begun to make its way to America. But by and large, most historians, scholars, and theologians in early 19th century America still did not know how to translate Egyptian. And it's fascinating that in that time, there was an assumption that just like Hebrew descended from that common, ancient, pristine, Adamic language, so did Egyptian. And that somehow Egyptian and Hebrew were the surviving ancient languages that were the closest resemblance to that pure language of Adam. There were actually several scholars and thinkers in the early 19th century who believed that one of the best ways to decipher Egyptian characters was to go through Hebrew first, to work through the Hebrew and somehow reverse engineer the meaning of the Egyptian characters. We have several examples in the early 19th century of scholars doing just that. When Egyptian texts or inscriptions are uncovered or discovered in Egypt, we turn to Hebrew language or Hebrew scripture as a way to try to decipher that. So I think it's quite interesting that when Joseph Smith began working with the papyri and began working on that Egyptian alphabet and grammar that you'd referred to, I think that he was in that common mindset that one way that we can unpack the meaning of these Egyptian characters will be to learn Hebrew. I don't think that it's a coincidence that within three months of working with the papyri, he decides that it's time to organize a formal Hebrew class. I think that in his mind and in the minds of his associates, the two projects were meant to go together. And the school semester wouldn't start for a few months, and he wanted to get started. So he jumps right into the papyri, right into the Egyptian alphabet and grammar document. He begins the first few chapters of translation with the Book of Abraham. And then when it's finally time and the resources are in place, he turns his efforts to Hebrew, not as a distraction from the Egyptian project, but as a way to elucidate the Egyptian project. And I think that it's pretty clear that in his formal Hebrew studies, he's going to keep an eye on how they can inform his ongoing translation of the Book of Abraham. This was not a casual undertaking. I think if a group decided, hey, I want to start a Hebrew class, it would be difficult even now to find a professor to come teach a group of remedial students how to learn a very complex language. As you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, this is not an easy language to learn. Can you tell us a little bit more, just briefly, about the Hebrew school, how it got started, who taught it, who attended? So it's an interesting process of development of how this class came to be. As I said, by the summer of 1835, they were already immersed in the Egyptian project. And it seems that it's by the early part of October of 1835 that they decided that a Hebrew class would help facilitate the project. The earliest evidence for the organization of Hebrew class begins with the formation of a committee in October of 1835 to try to find a teacher, to try to identify the best resources, and try to figure out how to incorporate a formal class into the Kirtland school system that academic year. At first, what they found was a, a nearby Jewish professor of physics named Daniel Pashoto, who taught at Willoughby Medical College, which was not far from Kirtland. And in November of 1835, uh, Joseph and some of the other leaders of the church attend a physics lecture given by Daniel Pashoto, and they realize that this would be a wonderful start to their Hebrew studies if they could get Pashoto to teach the course. So they invite him, and at first, Pashoto is willing and even recommends some Hebrew resources that they need to acquire first. By the end of November 1835, Joseph Smith sends Oliver Cowdery to New York to acquire the Hebrew resources that a, a class like that would need. 
And so we have this fascinating account of Oliver going to New York City, acquiring a whole collection of different Hebrew resources. We have Hebrew grammars written by Moses Stewart. We have Biblia Hebraica. It's the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament in Hebrew. We also have copies of a Josiah Gibbs lexicon of Hebrew. And so Oliver Cowdery will bring all of these resources back to Kirkland. Unfortunately, though, by then, Peshoto had fallen through. And so here's Joseph and his associates with all of these great Hebrew resources, no Hebrew teacher, but that's not going to stop Joseph Smith. And so Joseph begins opening his Hebrew books, starts almost a two-month-long personal study of his Hebrew books. It makes you wonder how far he would have gotten on his own. But certainly during those two months, he's reading through his grammar books, trying to teach himself the alphabet and maybe the basics of vocabulary. He at least starts to open up the Hebrew Bible and tries to read the early passages of Genesis in Hebrew. And, and again, you wonder how successful it might have been in those early days, especially because some of these resources were very technical, very difficult to work through without a proper instructor. Throughout December and early January, that's exactly what Joseph Smith is doing. In fact, by early January, Joseph doesn't want to wait any longer to organize a class. And so he organizes a class and appoints himself to be the teacher. The process seems to be that Joseph would read some chapters out of his Hebrew books the previous night and the next day try to teach them himself to the members of the school. And you can imagine there's going to be some mixed results there. They're going to have moments where they're very excited about what they're learning or what they think they're learning. And they're also going to have moments of frustration and debate and discouragement. There's that fascinating story where Orson Pratt and Joseph Smith begin debating the proper pronunciation of a Hebrew letter. Joseph claims to have won the debate, but in reality, I don't think either of them knew enough to be certain. Initially, it was very difficult to start the course. That's going to change in late January of 1836. By that point, they had identified a scholar in the region named Joshua Satius, who was a Jewish scholar of ancient languages. He was a fairly young scholar, about the age of Joseph Smith at the time, in his early 30s. He had a series of academic appointments, teaching adjunct, basically, at different colleges throughout the Northeast. And as it turns out, in 1835, he was finishing up a semester of teaching Hebrew at nearby Oberlin College. And somehow, Joseph and the Saints became acquainted with Joshua Satius, this Jewish scholar of Hebrew, and had convinced Satius to relocate to Kirtland. And so when Joshua Satius arrives in Kirtland in late January of 1836, he organizes a formal seven-week intensive study of Hebrew using his own materials, his own grammar books and worksheets, at the beginning of the Hebrew school, there was over 100 Latter-day Saints who were either interested in learning Hebrew or that were personally invited by Joseph Smith to study the language as a part of the class. Initially, most of these class members were leaders of the church and were elders who were preparing to go on their missions that summer. Among the earliest members of the class, we had such early Mormon leaders as Brigham Young, Heber Kimball, W.W. Phelps, Oliver Cowdery, Orson Pratt, Orson Hyde, Hiram Smith, and of course, Joseph as well. Uh, so it's kind of the who's who of early Mormon leadership, and they were all involved in the Hebrew class. Some were more enthusiastic about it than others. I think Brigham had to come a little reluctantly. I was going to say, I think it was like an army invitation. <laughs> You are invited and you will be there. And you will be there. Yes, yeah, exactly I, right. I heard that Brigham Young was allowed to go work on the temple. He was. Because Brigham he was struggled. struggling he, so He did much. struggle. He struggled in class. Heber C. Kimball struggled in class. Yeah, no question about that. Some of the others were actually quite excited about it. Phelps and Cowdery and Orson Pratt was quite good at ancient languages naturally. There was a mixed reaction there among the leaders. I did want to say, though, that in addition to uh, this fairly large group of early Mormon leaders and early Mormon elders... I came across some fascinating evidence that showed that there were women and maybe even some young adults 
in the class as well. For example, we've got this account of a woman, a 30-year-old mother of four named Persis Goodall Young, who decided to attend the class. And she was actually commended by Joshua Satius as being consistently the best prepared student in the course. We have other accounts of women who maybe weren't able to attend the class, but who would study their husband's Hebrew books at home. As this class then developed, as I said, Joshua Satius organized a seven-week intensive course, divided up his 120 students into four classes that would each meet daily, and he would work through the basics of Hebrew vocabulary and grammar and translation using his own textbooks and using a series of worksheets that would be assigned as homework so that the members of the class would uh, take these worksheets home and fill them out and work on parsing verbs and so forth and apparently would hand them in and this would all be part of the, the instruction. Between the journal entries of these students, the surviving Hebrew grammar books with the notes in the margins and the, some other evidence, we're able to do a modest reconstruction of how this course worked. We know that in the early part of the course, they began obviously with learning the basics of the Hebrew alphabet and Hebrew spelling, which Satius taught from a very distinct perspective. Satius taught a Sephardic Hebrew spelling system that wouldn't lessen the quality of their Hebrew studies, but would certainly leave a distinct mark on the way that they would eventually use Hebrew. Now, what is Sephardic? So Sephardic is a form of Judaism that comes from the Mediterranean world rather than the more central European world. And in the academies, it was the more central European, what's called Ashkenazic Hebrew, that was becoming the standard way of spelling Hebrew words into English. But Joshua Satius's family was a Sephardic family. And so they had a different form of spelling that Satius taught to his students and that is the kind of spelling that Joseph Smith learned. And so when Joseph Smith will eventually use Hebrew in his translations and in his sermons, he's going to be using that very distinct Sephardic spelling system that he learned from Satius. And that actually helps us to identify when and where Joseph is using his coursework in his prophetic work. You're talking about when he's transliterating, when mm -hmm. he's writing things down in the Roman alphabet yes. instead of the Hebrew alphabet. Exactly. So someone who doesn't know Hebrew can pronounce it. Exactly. And Joseph was doing that based on his training from Satius. In addition to working through the grammar book and working through the worksheets, it was in that original seven-week class that Joseph began really working on proper translation, where he began studying parts of Genesis and Exodus and the Psalms in Hebrew. Reading through Joseph Smith's journals is really interesting because he absolutely threw himself into that study. Not only is he attending class every day for that seven-week period, but he's also requesting personal tutorial sessions with Joshua Satius. He's working ahead on homework assignments because he's so excited to continue to do more. He's attending additional lectures. He's attending other classrooms when he has some free time. He studies on Sunday. He studies when he's sick. And this is all during a very busy administrative time for him as he's getting ready to dedicate the Kirtland Temple with everything else that he has going on. The fact that he's taking so much time and energy to learn Hebrew shows that it was very, very important to him and, and what he perceived as his prophetic work. In fact, uh, as I've shared this in different venues, I've had several people ask me, well, wasn't that distracting to them as they're getting ready to dedicate the Kirtland Temple and they have church business affairs and administrative issues? taking that much time to study a biblical language, wasn't that distracting to the greater spiritual goals that they had with the temple, for example? I think the answer is just the opposite. I think that Joseph did not see this as distracting from his spiritual endeavors. I think he saw this as enhancing them. I think that he saw his interaction with biblical Hebrew and his ability to start reading, as he said, the word of the Lord in the original, 
as an opportunity to facilitate and intensify the spiritual experiences that would attend the Kirtland Temple dedication, which happened towards the end of this Hebrew class. It's during this time where he's translating Genesis that he runs across something that affects his theological thinking for the rest of his life. Would you like to elaborate on that? Sure. As I said earlier, going into the Hebrew studies, I think that the ongoing translation of the Book of Abraham was very much on his mind. And we already know from journal entries from before the Hebrew class that Joseph was anticipating the Book of Abraham to shed light on the nature of God and the nature of the creation and the cosmos. So I'm fairly confident that he went into his Hebrew studies looking for potential insights into those issues, looking for ways in which Hebrew could not only enhance and inform his Abraham translation, but also his understanding of the nature of God, the creation of the world, and even the cosmos itself. And I think he finds it. I think it's probably during that initial Hebrew study in Kirtland during early 1836 that he notices a technicality in Hebrew that will come to impact his thinking in great ways. And that is the plural form of the Hebrew word for God, which is Elohim. Before that, leading up to it, Joseph had already had untraditional views of the Godhead and the nature of God. We see some of that in his earliest revelations. But I think that recognizing that the Hebrew word for God was plural, whether he recognized that in his earliest personal studies of Hebrew or he learned it finally from Satius in class, I think that got his mind thinking in a way and got the wheels turning in a way that by the Nauvoo period will result in some interesting theological developments as Joseph begins contemplating the nature of God, the plurality of gods, the counsel of gods. These later Nauvoo teachings, I think, have their roots in his study of Hebrew and his understanding of the Hebrew word Elohim being plural. So Satius didn't buy this, did he? No. So in a later sermon in Nauvoo, when he's talking about the plurality of gods using the Hebrew word Elohim as the evidence to support this teaching, he actually refers to a conversation that he had with a learned Jew about this very topic. And, and we can only assume that the learned Jew that he's referring to was Joshua Satius. I think that what happened was that sometime during the Hebrew class in Kirtland, uh, maybe as they're going through Genesis 1, which we know they translated as a class, I almost wonder if Joseph stopped the instruction and pointed out, this word is plural, should we translate this as plural? Which he would later do in Nauvoo. And what he tells us is that the learned Jew, who's probably Satius, said no, that technically speaking, the word is plural in form, but we really should translate it as a singular that goes better with the singular verb and better with the context. But Joseph wouldn't have any of that. Uh, Joseph was convinced that if it, the word is plural in form, we should translate it as plural. He did have a disagreement there with his teacher. And I think his teacher graciously conceded at the end that, okay, you can translate it as plural, but I think Joseph took it much farther in his theological development than his teacher Joshua Satius would have. Can we see traces of Joseph's use of Hebrew in the book of Abraham? We can. So one of the ways in which Joseph revisited his Hebrew studies and the way his Hebrew studies impacted his work in the Nauvoo period was through his continuing and finalizing of the Abraham translation. As we said earlier in the podcast, the Book of Abraham translation began earlier in 1835, but as far as we can tell, he only got through the first two chapters in that early period. Then as he's studying Hebrew, he's gleaning insights into additional Abraham material, and it's going to be in early 1842, having now studied Hebrew, that he revisits the Abraham translation and picks up where he left off. 
And it's going to be in the later Abraham materials, Abraham 3, 4, and 5, and in the facsimile explanations that are all finalized at Nauvoo, where we begin to see Joseph as a translator incorporating the material he'd learned in his Hebrew class into his final publication of the Book of Abraham. I think we can identify two or three different ways in which that Hebrew learning or Hebrew studies impacted that Abraham translation process in Nauvoo. The first one, I think we can call editorial elucidations, right? Whereas he is looking at the facsimiles, which are these Egyptian vignettes and these images, these pictures that will accompany the Abraham translation, Joseph starts giving explanations of what the different images mean. And in his explanations, he will use Hebrew openly as ways to help elucidate and pull out meaning from these Egyptian images. Now, today, modern Egyptologists would read those images very differently. In the early 19th century, before an academic understanding of Egyptian was widespread, I think Joseph is doing something more along the lines of trying to use Hebrew to try to explain the meaning of these Egyptian images for the purposes of his translation project. So that's kind of category number one of his use of Hebrew, is his use of Hebrew vocabulary, such as the Hebrew word for heavens, which is shamayim, or the Hebrew word for the expanse or the firmament, which is rakia, or the Hebrew word for the stars, which is kokabim. These are words that Joseph will take from his Hebrew studies and use to explain the Egyptian images. These all included satious transliterations. They did, yeah. So when Joseph Smith would use these Hebrew words, he would spell them in ways that he was taught to by his Hebrew instructor back in Kirtland with that very distinct Sephardic spelling. In addition to using Hebrew vocabulary to explain Egyptian imagery, he also incorporates Hebrew vocabulary into his translation. So, for example, in Abraham chapter 3, when Abraham is having this vision about the stars and about the cosmos, once again, Joseph Smith as a translator will interject Hebrew vocabulary to help the flow of the narrative. And so we see, again, some more of those transliterated Hebrew words in that text. And then finally, I think the most profound impact that his Hebrew studies is going to have on the translation of Abraham will be in the Abrahamic creation account in Abraham chapters 4 and 5. Joseph knew from before studying Hebrew that the book of Abraham would contain creation material. So in early 1842, when he revisits or at least finalizes the Abrahamic creation account, it seems pretty clear that he drew heavily upon the King James version of Genesis 1 to 2. And then at key moments, he alters the KJV vocabulary or the KJV wording and includes insights he received in his Hebrew class, such as the plurality of gods as a reflection of his translation of the Hebrew word Elohim. So all throughout the Abraham creation story, instead of God creating or God saying, it's they, the gods creating, or they, the gods saying this or that. And I think that's a really important example of Joseph Smith's Hebrew insights informing the way his translation is working. And another way that that's going to work is in his use of the Hebrew word bara, which traditionally is translated simply as to create. But Joseph, using a more obscure meaning, perhaps, of the word bara, decides to go for the idea of forming pre-existing materials. And so in the creation account, we have the plurality of gods forming pre-existing materials rather than the traditional God-created the heavens and the earth. So at the key moments, we see Joseph's Hebrew studies impacting his work as a translator in the book of Abraham. Do we see this Hebrew influence in Joseph's sermons of the Nauvoo period as well? 
We do, especially the sermons that are given after the publication of the Book of Abraham in early 1842. I think the two really important examples of doctrinal sermons that, again, reflect a really strong influence of, of the Hebrew studies come from the King Follett Discourse in April of 1844 and another discourse that Joseph gives in June of 1844, not long before his death. And in both of these sermons, we see Joseph continuing to develop the thinking that that came from the book of Abraham on the plurality of gods and on the organization of the world through forming pre-existing materials. We see both of these very distinct Mormon concepts that came from the Nauvoo period. We see them articulated in sermons that Joseph gives after the book of Abraham is translated. In the King Follett discourse, for example, Joseph again revisits Genesis 1-1 in Hebrew, but he's going to offer two or three different ways of translating the Hebrew here, all of which, in his mind, unpack theological possibilities. So, for example, in the King Follett Discourse, he discusses the traditional translation of Genesis 1 being that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, Joseph Smith takes some of the insights that he gained from class and does some very creative reworking of that traditional translation. Instead of saying that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Joseph finds in the word Bereshit, which is in the beginning, he pulls out the word Rosh, which is the head. And then instead of create, he does form. Instead of God, he pulls out the gods. And so whereas traditionally it was in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Joseph reworks that based on some very creative Hebrew insights that he gained from class to translate it, in fact, as the head God brought forth the counsel of the gods along with the heavens and the earth a very untraditional translation that today any traditional student in a class could not get away with. I don't think any scholars would agree that that is the best, most literal reading of that passage. But for Joseph, I don't think he was trying to give a static traditional translation. I think that Joseph was trying in these sermons to mine the Hebrew words, vocabulary, and grammar for theological possibilities. That's why I don't think he ever settled on one definitive translation of Genesis 1-1, I think he was constantly looking for possibilities there, possibilities into the plurality of gods, the counsel of gods, the ways in which they organized the materials and brought forth the heavens and the earth, and all these things that are not traditional Hebrew translations, but where Joseph would defer to either more obscure meanings, less conventional ideas, but for him, he was pulling out theological possibilities And the result of this exploration of the Hebrew grammar and Hebrew vocabulary will end up producing some of the most distinct Mormon teachings from the Nauvoo period regarding the nature of God, regarding the plan of salvation, and even regarding the early rituals of the Nauvoo temple. This shows us just once again that we really need to think about what Joseph meant about translating and the translation process. It shows us that Joseph Smith viewed his relationship between his prophetic work and his academic studies as interrelated. Yes. What part of the Book of Abraham puzzle do you think this gives us? For Joseph Smith, there really was no dichotomy between intellectual endeavors and spiritual endeavors. For Joseph Smith, they were actually one and the same. It shows us some of the mechanics of the Book of Abraham translation process. It shows us that at certain points in the translation, Joseph was interested and willing as a translator and as an editor of taking insights that he learned from his academic work and incorporating them into his 
prophetic translation. And I think that in addition to showing us the mechanics of that, there are several examples where we can actually show him pulling verbiage from some of his dictionaries, some of his lexicons, some of his grammar books. He is clearly intellectually engaged in this process. I think what these things show us, number two, is that for Joseph, the essence of prophetic translation wasn't either a static traditional translation on the one hand or a totally, completely spiritual, supernatural experience on the other, but that it was actually a combination of both. This reflects him taking seriously his earlier revelations to study it out in both your heart and your mind. And so I think we see Joseph interacting with this academic material. For him, that's going to serve as a bit of a catalyst to the unfolding revelatory translation process. As a scholar of the Hebrew Bible, does this strike you as very similar to what went on with the prophetic writings in the Old Testament? Yes and no. I know some scholars have tried to argue that the Book of Abraham translation fits better into categories of pseudepigrapha or even Targums or Midrash or Pesharim, some of these categories of ancient Jewish scripture writing that was a little more flexible, a little more fluid than a static single translation. That may be the case. I don't know that any one of those categories are necessarily a perfect fit for the Book of Abraham, but I think that they get at the idea that Joseph's idea of translation was much more expansive than we often assume, that he was able to take a core concept or a core object of inspiration, as it were, and expand it in ways that he found relevant in his prophetic capacity, that he found to be important and enlightening, even if it went beyond what he thought was on the text. I think it was a very fluid, expansive translation process that might find some kind of analogy in the earlier biblical models, inspired targums or inspired expansions of earlier biblical texts. So I'm not sure if those are perfect analogies, but they may provide some possible frameworks for understanding what Joseph is doing with these translation materials. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.